Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it has turned four o'clock, but I'll be here until 5.30. It's Jan Bartlett and that's Tuesday Home Time. Today, environmental activism in East Timor with Lee Tan, who's been spending quite a bit of time in that country over the last year. Cuba, Past and Possible Future, Part 2 with Dr Ralph Newmark, who's the Director of Latin American Studies at La Trobe University. And Berta Kakaris, um, Honduran Indigenous activist, was awarded the Goldman Environmental Prize last month. I'll be speaking with Beverly Bell about Berta. Beverly is the founder of Other Worlds. But let's first hear from Mr Kevin and see if he's been been behaving himself this week. A week, Jane, listener, when the major economic problems the government inherited last year from the irresponsible socialists have obviously dissipated as we now see the compassionate side of the caring business class party. The draconian measures in last year's budget, which failed to get through, clearly fixed up the problem. Compassion now going so far that young unemployed are saved from starvation and hyperthermia for six months every six months and now only have to starve and freeze for a month or or even less if they don't make it but the gee you thought that one through award of the week to tiny and team true blue aussie for their brilliant plan to win the quote women's vote or family vote by providing all this money for childcare. women will love us and how will we pay for it uh, tiny joe matthias uh, josh and thus the equally brilliant idea to slash spending on maternity leave, explaining to women they are double-dipping, rotting fraudsters. Mothers have been bludging on this country for far too long. About here, we presume, Joe and Matthias headed off to have a big laugh over a couple of Cuban cigars and a few French cognacs, giving the big two-finger salute to our US of the UN of the US of the world, very, very close friends, Cuban embargo. We have sewn up the women's vote, Joe. Too right, Matthias, they'll love us. By the way, my wife is not a double-dipping, writing fraudster, and Josh's wife is not either. Tiny and Team True Blue Aussie for chasing women's and mothers' votes by giving them all this money with one hand and paying for it by taking all this money off them with the other. Your, gee, you thought that one through a water of the week is on its way. Actually, the think, the thought bit does beg the question, because we might have thought, at least one of them might have thought, uh, maybe that might have the odd repercussion. But no. Nonetheless, the polls suggest the major parties are now running head-to-head in the big race that doesn't stop a nation. And as for preferred big supremo, overwhelming support for none of the above. Related to that, and I'll explain why in a moment on our favourite media baron, we mentioned last week Lord Rupert regards jihad and terror as sport and sport as diversionary politics or vice versa. So his front pages are either all politics or all sport, depending how we look at it. How's that related to the government's oh-so-clever pitched-at-women campaign? Well, suddenly, big switch. Thursday, killing fields at home. Friday, save our women. 
no mention of jihad or football, all against a take-a-stand slogan. All of a sudden, Lord Rupert and his whopping sin care, care, care about domestic violence. P1 Picky Friday and another one inside of that champion of women, apart from double-dipping, rorting frauds to mothers, big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses himself, and caring business class party singer Collie Newitt backing the campaign. Those with long memories will recall that after the turn on the lights true blue Aussie caring business class party election campaign with Renee Geyer singing the campaign song, Colleen Newitt sang the caring business class party song at the following election and in my opinion neither should ever be heard on this station like that John Denver who was seen in a David Bradbury documentary at a Santiago presidential garden party praising General Pinch of Shit for getting rid of the commies at the height of Pinch of Shit's butchery. Oh, I hope one of our 3CR regulars doesn't regard any song as one of her favourites, but, but I divert into a bout of personal vitriol, just like to keep reminding ourselves. Not that Lord Rupert campaigning on domestic violence is a bad thing, every little bit helps, just hope it isn't just another marketing fad that he runs for a few days, then drops like the proverbial hot. Especially after its report Wednesday of True Blue Aussie's latest drunken barroom brawl champion, singer. That happy, happy, great true blue Aussie whom everyone just loves following... Oh no, sorry, sorry, it wasn't a barroom brawl where some low-life ocker attacks another drunk with a broken common beer glass. It, it was an upmarket feed the super rich and their hangers-on very, very expensive restaurant brawl where Sigo attacked another super rich purveyor of salt, sugar and fat junk food with a broken glass. Not a common old beer glass, but a fine glassware wine glass, which presumably Singo had emptied many times. Many, many times. Not that I have a right to be critical of anyone doing that without being a total hypocrite, but Singo, employer of Sydney's most infamous shock jocks, explained the whole thing direct quote. The fight was over a woman. We don't have one. <laughs> he joked. He was trying to find a woman to belt, and I was trying to have a sex change so he could bash me. <laughs> oh, what a wit, that singer. Don't we have to piss ourselves laughing every time he opens his fun, fun, fun mouth? Well, we just love him. That's the best joke I've heard about domestic violence since former minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect. Alexander cracked that hysterical joke a few years ago, which made sure he was never Big Supremo. If Singo's an example, the Whopping Sin has a long, long campaign ahead of it. And note, Singo also managed to whip in a homophobic joke as well. See, he's a marketing guru. Speaking of marketing, we're all looking forward to the big one coming up, the big championship battle, Jamie Puker versus Singo, Sunday morning on the nature strip outside Jamie's modest little mansion. Well, he's Sydney one. Poor Singo got fined 500 or so for public disorder. Ouch! Wouldn't that hurt? I say modest little Sydney mansion because we're all thrilled to know Jamie has bought the house right next door to Zion Supremo Benjamin, not another Yahoo, in Jerusalem and is spending most of his time in Zion, presumably because he just loves liberty, freedom and democracy and might we say Zion's welcome to him.
Speaking of hurt, after soccer, the public purse to us big supremo Frank Lowy and getting lowery, particularly while falling off the platform, who saw the billions he demanded off the public purse to bring a World Cup to Troubadoisi attract exactly one vote, presumably his own. Frank, who spent his life ensuring the very rich get very richer and stuff the rest of you, fell off the platform, took a very low-scoring naught out of ten belly wacker dive following the soccer grand final, commentators later reported, good news, he's okay. And I thought, why is that good news? No, only joking, Frank. The week that was would hate to see anything bad happen to a great troubler, was he, who's devoted his life to getting richer and richer and stuff the rest of us and raising two clearly brilliant offspring, so brilliant they are now big caring employers in the same lower-than-low company, working their talented way up from the top, devoting their altruistic lives to getting richer and richer and stuff the rest of us. A couple of US ob lobbyists also arrived here this week hoping to make the world a better place, particularly for their clients, the global technology companies who are so upset that the law doesn't allow them to pay any tax. Despite this respect for the law, they put forward a very strong case that True Blue Aussie should not change the law which might force them to pay some tax, although I'm sure they just have to pay a bit more to their tax lawyers and accountants, which would of course be a tax deduction, but direct quote, I just think there are easier, smarter and better ways to get government revenue up than by taxing cyberspace. It's much more complicated than it sounds. Unfortunately, they didn't expand on what is easier, smarter and better to raise revenue than, wait for it, paying tax. And if they had to pay tax, it gets worse. True Blue Aussie users, and this is obviously all these lobbyists care about, would have to pay more because the poor transnational corporates would have to charge more. See? Big problem. You don't want an unfriendly business environment, but you want a fair business environment. They sagely advise True Blue Aussie. And what is a fair business environment? Our clients feel the current environment is very fair. It would be very unfair to hurt decent, hard-working, generating jobs and investment transnationals who have adjusted their business model to not paying crippling taxes by observing the law. That would be kind of retrospective law. Finally, there are those who should pay. Fair Work True Blue Aussie Building and Construction Jackboots Authority is suing 40 evil, lazy, avaricious building workers for more than 10 grand each over allegedly stopping work on a Queensland University project over a safety issue. Come on, who ever heard of construction workers having safety problems? Their caring employers bend over backwards in the boardroom to ensure their workers are safe. The number one jackboot Nigel Hedge kissed the bosses explained his neutrality. All people, regardless of whether they are an employer, worker or union official, are expected to comply with the law. And how many caring employers are you suing, Nigel? Well, caring employers comply with the law. You don't see responsible caring employers stopping work on building sites over insignificant matters like safety, do you? And that's even though, as they tell us, caring employers take all the risks. Good afternoon. I think he's had a pretty good week. That's Mr Kevin Healy, and he'll continue that 
pretty good week tomorrow morning at nine o'clock with his program City Limits. And coming up in about two, three weeks' time. Three CR's 2015 Radiothon is almost here. We need your support more than ever. Indigenous people, refugees, students and people with a disability, the unemployed, youth and the elderly are all under attack from Abbott government's ideological war on the poor. At 3CR, we're asking you to activate the airwaves from June 1st to 14th by donating money during our annual Radiothon to keep us on air for another year. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference, so to donate, go to 3cr.org.au or call 94198377. Get active. Support 3CR, truly independent community radio. environmental activist Lee Tan next, talking about her continuing work in East Timor. I've been visiting Timor very regularly for the last 12 months, probably about five times, ranging from three weeks to three months. I spend a lot of time in there working with Friends of the Earth partner, Habaras Foundation. Yeah, we are trying to Again, you know, promote more ecologically sound practices. One of the activities that Habaras has done quite successfully is a small-scale community-based tourism. They have set up three sites with the local people, by supporting local people, and all three of them are running quite well. It can, of course, you know, gain from having more people, but they're doing quite well, and it has been sustainable. And now we are trying to introduce low-technology but appropriate-type technology that can be used to improve sanitation, to filter wastewater, particularly from the household, so that the water can be used again in growing food because in the northern part of Timor, there's always been a water shortage, particularly in the dry season, putting up a solar power system for the training centre of uh, Harborous Foundation, which is a, a little bit away from its capital, Dili, is uh, in Hera. So we'll be doing that in the month of uh, July, August. Looking at the land tenure and who owns the land in East Timor, is agribusiness moving in or is it the people, the smaller people, have they got a chance to have their own piece of land? The land issue is very, very complex. Currently, there's a draft of the land law. In fact, the land law was passed, but the president rejected it. So it has gone back to parliament for redrafting. There's been a lot of problems in that the land law, if passed at its original form, will undermine traditional customary land greatly. And that has the potential to create conflicts because many Timorese fought for independence precisely because they want to retain their traditional customs and also their rights to land and natural resources. Because of his complex history of having once colonised by the Portuguese, then occupied by the Indonesian for about 24 years, the Portuguese previously for well, a long time, 400 years, that has changed a lot of this land tenure system. Timorese are hoping that 
when they get independence, they can redress some of the injustice that you know their ancestor or whoever had suffered in the hands of the colonizer and the occupier. But what they're finding today, the government is trying to access as much land as possible in order to possibly privatizing it or you know making use of them to boost kind of uh, the market driven free market economy and of course that will be a problem for the majority of the timorese in fact i've been asked to mentor the land campaign which involve about 20 civil society groups you know they there's some issues that we have to deal with but you know i met with some really brilliant community groups that have strong links with um farmers and also women's group and so on and so forth yeah we hope to be able to kind of bring about a, a better and more just land law so that development in timor will be more community centered more sustainable not like in many other developing country there's massive land grabs mind you there's already massive land grabs in timor by rich developers from overseas some from australia some from asia and others from you know from everywhere some of the prime land near to capital dili have already been grabbed whether illegally or legally without consideration for the community or the environment there's something that you know i'm hoping to be able to work with some of the local groups to address at some stage is the land being used to produce food at the moment yes wherever community have access to land they've used it as their ancestor has been using for agriculture small scale farming for coffee growing crops that they can grow both to feed their family and also when there's an excess they will sell it at the market and in the eastern part where there are much more grassland there's been quite a fair bit of uh, cattle and buffaloes horses and what have you sheep or goats being uh, kept they all kept by and large in a much more sustainable kind of free and organic manner but i know the government's trying to intensify that if the government is not capturing lessons learned it may be problematic what about women in east timor now 13 years after independence have they made any gains you know some of the women who have access to education yes they able now to work but by and large the majority of the rural women are still very disadvantaged i have been to places where the young women who are totally illiterate because they've never been to a school although the current government has a night school and adult education but they're quite limited the standard is probably way too low for what the country needs definitely there is a need for improved education and also better adult education particularly trade skill development which is why i will be traveling to timor in uh, later this year with uh, several trade people to try and transfer some of the skill that are relevant and simple to local people so that they can gain some simple skill that can help to manage their wastewater to look at improved building design tackling some of the building problems that they have you're saying that a lot of the girls don't go to school does that mean that they're being married off early and having lots of children still in some places yeah in some of the rural places they marry off 
in their teens. But the better educated people are now delaying marrying. The one who has formal education often has has、uh, more choices, so they can make decision. And if they're not happy in a relationship, they can choose, you know, to work and to continue to support their their child or children.、Uh, unlike before, they would have to put up with fairly bad domestic violence and whatever you. And mind you, domestic violence is a pretty serious issue in Timor. Are the rural areas being neglected for the big towns? Very much so. Now there's a change of prime minister. He's hoping to be a lot more targeting local people. So I should ask you to yeah, get an analysis、too. of the, the yeah.、Past. Okay. Well, I think one of the reasons why the former popular prime minister Shanana Gushma has to step down is because. Of his way of managing the country, I mean, he was a good leader in that he was, you know, able to keep peace since the two thousand and six riot. But he did that by basically paying off veterans in the rural area or over the country. They kind of use a, a bullying me-、uh, method to keep peace in that sense, and that's not really sustainable. And you know, the last straw was.、Uh, He sacked all the Portuguese judges, and that really earned him a very bad, negative reputation. Why did he do that? He did that. There was some、um, suggestion that it was linked to some corruption cases that was in court. He might be trying to interfere with、uh, the judiciary. As a result of that, you know, he sacked the judges. Although some people say, well, some of those judges weren't very efficient, weren't very competent. What he did right was actually hand handed over the prime ministership, in fact, to somebody from the opposition party, which is very interesting. So now they're ruling the country as a coalition. Which is interesting on the one hand, but critics are worried that because of that, there's not going to be any independent criticism within Parliament itself. Everyone's trying to do deals with each other, and so there won't be any critical analysis from within Parliament. But on the other hand, the current Prime Minister has、um, shown his leadership, promising to be a clean leader by declaring his asset. When he was sworn in, and also signed a pact with the the UNDP, which is a UN agency that assists developing country to clean up the public service to try and upskill the public service. I think that's really good because in the past one of the problem is the lack of、uh, professionalism within the public service, and when that happen, corruption can easily take over. And it has to a certain degree. So the change of prime ministership is a good development, and more importantly, it was done without any violence, without any unrest, and everyone's really quite happy and hopeful about that. I guess now what we need to see is whether or not the current government will move away from、uh, using the oil revenue to make the elite of the country happy by buying lots of. Government vehicles and building huge, majestic buildings amidst rising poverty and slums. To focus on better education, better community infrastructure, and also to support the small farmers. I don't think the small farmers had any 
support at all. I spoke with some groups that work with farmers. They felt that the farmers are left to fend for themselves, and apart from the civil society groups, no one's really supporting them. And I've also heard that Aussie has some experimental plot. Trialing GMO crops. I, I haven't had a lot of details, but that's very worrying if that's true. What's the influence of Indonesia at this time? There are still many traders from Indonesia. The Timorese government's wanting to have like a peaceful trade relationship with Indonesia. It's hard to know whether or not Indonesia is、uh, still trying to undermine Timor Leste. There was definitely a. A rebel, a former resistant leader, who was released by the Indonesian and then went into exile in Europe, and then he returned, and now he's seen as the biggest threat to security in Timor. He has a group of followers, and he hide out in in a fairly remote part in Baukal district. And now and then we hear violent conflicts between him and and the police or the military. We don't know who funds him. There's a lot of theory that he's funded by the Indonesian, but we haven't got proof of that yet. What's Dili like now? Congested for a little town. It is hard to believe. You know how you can get such serious traffic jam. Yeah, the road infrastructure is very poor. The many narrow roads. It is functional, but it is a hard town to live in. I dislike Delhi a lot. I prefer many of the rural places. It's congested, not that safe. It's been a lot of thefts, a bit of harassment, you know, to expatriates and foreigners. It's a place where people from the country come to seek opportunities to make money. I've seen, you know, some slum area growing very fast in the last few years, and that's quite alarming. Is the NGO sector sustainable? They have their own problems with governance, management. Very often, it is very easy for the so-called hierarchical system to take over. For NGOs that has a much flatter decision-making structure, they tended to survive better. For NGO that relies on a, a strict hierarchy, you find abuse of power and a little bit corruption. And maybe even embezzlement of funds, and that's why a lot of the NGOs kind of folded. They're struggling with capacity for the staff. I think now is a time where some NGOs are having to really seriously look into how they can improve their own capacity, institutional、uh, structure, and so on and so forth. So it's challenging time for the people and NGOs. That are genuine and committed to the cause, they will survive. And for those who are there, you know, for personal self-interest of a few people, they will collapse. Is there much tourism now? It's not huge tourism like what you see in Bali, of course, and that's not really what we would desire、uh, for Timor Leste. But yes, there's been a continuous flow of people. Timor has something very unique to offer. For his, his rich culture, rituals, and amazingly breathtaking scenery all over, all over the country, the landscape, the people—all that makes it a very, very attractive place. And that's probably why some of us, re, you know, continue to return because we're finding it such a fascinating place, although challenging and difficult at times to work in. 
the culture you find in the small villages, if you're a tourist, what do you find? Well, their farming method, you know, they're still very traditional, but it's very ecologically quite sustainable. They're small-scale farmers. The tasks are quite well laid out. Everything is done manually almost. Their ecological footprint is almost minimal or none. Although, you know, some area needs to be improved, like sanitation and access to clean water and so on and so forth. What fascinates me most is the rituals that they carry out. Many of them remain very strong animists. They believe in appeasing the spirits of the land, of the sea, of the forest, and of anything and everything. For example, in one of the tourist sites, they have had very serious problem with fresh water. A bore was drilled many years ago, but they kept having problems with the bore water. And one of the women, who is one of the leaders of the group, say to me, it's because they never did the proper ritual, you know, to the spirit of the water there. And that's why they're experiencing so many problems. And interestingly, a few months later, they fixed the technical problems, then they did the ritual. And since then, nothing's been problematic with that water supply. I mean, you know, they believe in it and they still practice it. And because they have such a strong ritual, it helps to protect the land. It helps also to conserve the place. They even have ritual where they get the community to agree on how they would take care of certain parts of their environment. I find that quite useful. It's called Tarabandu in some places and different names in different parts of Timor. Is slash and burn a tradition? Yes, it is. I think there's a lot of uh, misinformation about slash and burn. If slash and burn is controlled properly, it is by far the most kind of ecologically sustainable agriculture system for the people. They do not do the slash and burn like the oil palm industry in Indonesia or the cane industry in other developing countries where they burn you know, massive amount of forest just to grow a monoculture crops. Their slash and burn is very contained in a smallish area. Usually it is a previously farmed area that has slightly regenerated and then they burn it mainly just to keep the soil fertile and also, more importantly, to keep the insects from attacking their crops. And they will grow crops there for one or two years, and then they they left it fallow again to let it regenerate. Uh, sometimes they continue to use it to collect you know, certain food or fruits or whatever, and then they return to it. I think where slash and burn becomes unsustainable is when the population grow too fast and there's not enough land to sustain that method of agriculture. So they can do with interventions such as mulching and composting and what have you and other you know, modern so-called organic farming method. But it is not to be totally condemned. It's just like the fire management of uh, our Australian Aboriginal people. You know, it was once kind of blamed for all kinds of ecological problems, when in fact it is a strategy for conservation as well. I, I believe strongly from my own research that 
so-called slash and burn is actually not as evil as it is being promoted by the large-scale agro agrobusinesses or government that are pro-privatization type of development. And you'll be listening to Lee Tan, environmentalist, who's off back to East Timor in a, a few weeks' time to continue her work with the people there. It's now 4.32 and you are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. You can be listening on your radio, you can be listening on your digital radio and you can be listening on your computer, streaming. You can listen up to, up to a one week each program and then it flips over to the next week or you can have the program synced to your computer or phone. So get onto the webpage 3CR au for Melbourne's community radio station and this is 3CR Stop the war and the poor Fair go for pensioners Age pensioners, unemployed people single parents with their children Vicious funding cuts to welfare, health and education Join Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition and fight the cuts and fight for our rights 11am Wednesday the 20th of May outside the State Library. Demand federal and state governments improve living standards, not attack them. Be outside the State Library of Victoria, 11am Wednesday the 20th of May to stop the war on the poor. Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition is a 3CR supporter. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. Just 25 bucks each. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Now to the final part of my interview with Dr Ralph Newmark, the Director of the Latin American Institute at La Trobe University, looking at the history, the present and the possible future for Cuba. What was happening in the period prior to 1953 with the the failed uprising, which led to Castro and others in jail? That's a very good question. After the US had stymied the 33 nationalist revolution, basically you got a generation of young Cubans going through university who had seen their country born in a compromised independence in 1902, had seen any attempt at you know, at least getting some economic nationalism for Cubans, stymied in 33. And by the 50s, particularly 52, Batista, instead of being the man behind the throne, and he, you know, there were puppet presidents, etc., he had it. He decided, look, I'll just be president and, you know, president for life. That's it. The idea was that a whole generation of young Cubans and particularly this young law graduate called Fidel Castro hatches an amazing idea. Think of this. He says to his uni friends, let's get some guns and go down and take the army barracks down in eastern Cuba at Moncada and start 
a revolution. The word comes to my head is harebrained. <laughs> they do it. I mean, it's unbelievable. These are just like ragtag uni students. No, no offence, I love my uni students. But, you, know, you know, I mean, oh, it's bad, given the, you know, the resources they had. So they did it. Half of them were killed. It's in 53, July 26. That's where the 26 comes from. Half of them are killed. The rest are put in jail, including Fidel. He gets 15 years for insurrection. After a couple of years... I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, you, you might, in retrospect, it looks mad. He did not take them seriously. Bunch of uni students. He lets them out. He lets Fidel out after two years. Just piss off, you know, he's a crazy uni type. So Fidel go, you know, leaves, you know, instead of 15 years, he did two or three. Goes to Mexico, meets a very interesting fellow who's a young Argentinian medical doctor who's travelling around. Uh, we know him as Che Guevara. They buy an old boat from some U.S. tourists in Mexico. <laughs> they sail back to Cuba in about 56, set up a guerrilla movement in the mountains of the uh, Far East in Sierra Maestra, and uh, start a uh, guerrilla war. Ultimately, they win. Not just them. I mean, the Cuban population to respond to a frustrations uh, go back maybe Hundreds of, really, in a sense, Cuba didn't get its independence in the old uh, 1800, early 1800s. What were the communications there at that time for the for the guerrilla in the in the mountains mm. to get the support of the the, the population? Because it's a fairly big island, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, it's the biggest island in the Caribbean. Uh, I think the point basically was, and this is often forgotten, that it is seen maybe you know that a bunch of bearded guys, Los Barbudos, you know, it's a very charismatic uh, group of guys, somehow single-handedly knocked off the whole Cuban army. Look, no, I mean, there was very close relationships with the rural people, and I think, you know, some forgotten group, I think, were the urban student groups who really responded to this. I mean, he became a sort of world celebrity, I think, uh, Herbert Matthews, I think, flew in from... New York and interviewed Fidel in the middle of all this. I mean, it wasn't, they weren't that isolated, but they were fighting a real war. They were really killing and nasty stuff. But I think we've got to remember that it was a people's revolution, not a bunch, if you like, of you know, intellectuals living up in the mountains only. I mean, I really think it was a people's revolution. And we're not talking specifically about men, the women. Oh, please, yes, indeed. And this comes out with uh, some of the revolutionary policies after they win. Many women, in fact, if you want to say, the next to the Afro-Cubans, the next most persecuted, if you like, or um, marginalised people in Cuba are, of course, women, you know, absolutely. And this is something that the, the revolution addressed very quickly after the victory. If you're going to deal with oppression, you've got to basically look at all social justice and women absolutely as well as Afro-Cubans and the poor people. There have been issues, but... Well, talk about those early days. They've beaten the, the soldiers. They're coming down into Havana, are they? Yes. And what's the situation there? I could imagine the euphoria of the people. There is this wonderful picture, of course, of the entrance of Fidel and his amigos to Havana in the 1st of January 1959. There's some wonderful shots. I mean, it was euphoria. Uh, Batista, even the US had said to Batista, enough's enough. Uh, and he fled, flees to Florida. Um, the point being, and this is interesting, that this business about 
Fidel being a communist, he actually was not a communist. If you look at the 26th of July movement's manifestos through the 50s, it's really just an economic nationalist document. It is not anti-capitalist. Basically, it's about economic nationalism, meaning Cuban resources to be owned by Cubans, and it doesn't have to be necessarily a state, but basically they were sick of utter and total foreign dependency on particularly one country, (laughs) North America. The problem becomes is when they win, what the hell do you do in a country that is utterly and totally, virtually, economically dependent on another country, and you're a nationalist? Well, day one or two, he froze rents in Cuba because the rents were exorbitant. Many people were spending, you know, so much money on rent. So he freezes that, which puts a real fear through the middle classes. And they start to leave over the Florida Straits, and we're getting suddenly an exodus. People are a bit nervous. I mean, next thing he does, of course, is that issue that really was at the bottom of Cuban problems was the issue of who owns the land. And an agrarian reform had to happen because much of the land by this point was owned by large U.S. sugar interests, Hershey, chocolates, these sorts of these areas. Now, what he decided to do was, of course, nationalise much of the particularly unused land, I mean, uh, that was owned by foreign interests in the United States. However, can I just say, nationalise, expropriate with compensation. Now, that's very important to say. The trouble is, how do you assess the compensation cost? Well, it's very easy. You look at the tax returns. (laughs) (laughs) You can imagine how these assets were valued by the by the very smart accountants for the U.S. companies. I mean, they were worth nothing because uh, – and so, you know, he said, well, I'll pay you, you know, 100 bucks for 1,000 acres. So I think the point was you know, it wasn't an illegal. It's quite legal. You are entitled to nationalise foreign assets as long as you compensate. And it's your fault if you haven't been honest. Yes, if you've been like, cheating the – the valuation of the assets, <laughs> you know, years. Then it gets nasty. The other thing, of course, is the US oil refineries. And they, you know, when this starts to happen, they say, well, we won't supply you with oil. So, of course, Fidel looks elsewhere and gets Soviet oil, then the embargo, and it just, you know, just explodes with uh, vitriol, of course, then. And remember, in the middle of the Cold War here. So, of course, the big C word, commo, he's a communist. And in the end, where he really, in many ways, with a fleeing middle class and a nationalist agenda, the socialism, like, it wasn't as though, you know, he was getting his orders from Moscow. I mean, this is mad. It was a developmental idea where, basically, if you're a nationalist leader in a dependent economy and there is your middle class leaving... The state is the only entity, really, that can run the means of production. So in a funny way, the U.S. made him a commo, politically, if I could use that word. Uh, And then the U.S. really reinforced it by the boycott. And in fact, in the end, he had to, within this polarised world, move to the other side. So it it was really a developmental issue, then a political issue. Then it gets really nasty when the U.S. send down these... um, a uh, ragtag bunch of Miami boys trained uh, called the Bay of Pigs invasion, which fails, based, I think, very much on the idea that the Cuban people would see these guys as liberators of this 
monster that the US State Department created called Fidel Castro the communist. Of course, <laughs> the people were rather pleased with their revolution, and so these blokes are cleaned up. Kennedy, the then president, refuses to do what they've always done, is send in the real US Army. I think part of the reason for that was they, they would have had to killed virtually everyone on the island to take it, I think, because he, Fidel was genuinely popular. And I think Kennedy didn't want that. After this, Fidel, of course, ultimately asks the Soviets for some protection. <laughs> then we get the missile crisis. There's a standoff between Khrushchev and uh, Kennedy, 14 days, I think it was, in 1962. I don't know if people remember this, but the world could have ended if they'd gone to war. Was that a mistake to invite them in? No, I think it actually wasn't. Even though Fidel actually was not consulted about what ultimately happened, it did guarantee that the US would never invade. And so in a funny way, even though Fidel was a bit pissed off that he, uh, the deal was done between Khrushchev and Kennedy, ultimately it guaranteed Cuba would not be invaded. Because what's not, I don't know how many people know, but the idea was that Khrushchev had the missiles steaming towards Cuba to set them up in the silos that the US had seen. And Kennedy said, no, we will go to war if you put them. And Khrushchev turned the boats back. But, and I don't know how well known this is, uh, that the US had missiles in Turkey, which really were, Moscow was well within range of this. And basically they, the deal, the secret deal, was no missiles in Cuba, take the missiles out of Turkey, and they did. And the byproduct was that, in fact, Fidel, I think uh, one might just say he was a pawn, but no, I think in a way it guaranteed Cuban from invasion. That's not to say that the CIA didn't spend the next 50 years trying to kill him. <laughs> Exploding cigars. Yeah. Why didn't they succeed, though? I mean, if they really wanted to kill him, surely they would have. Well, it's, it's interesting. You know, I think the one I love the most is that some bright spark in the CIA decided that Fidel's power really stemmed from the charisma of his beard. You remember that one? So they were going to poison him with some chemical, make all his hair fall out. <laughs> Could they have killed him? I'm not so sure. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, for so many years, the Cuban, the one thing the Cubans really had was pride in what they'd achieved. I mean, they achieved what no other country in Latin America has ever and, achieved. of course, that went against them too, didn't it? Because there's the example. Well, indeed. So they had to be persecuted forever. And, I mean, this is really where we get up to date when the Soviet Union collapses. I mean, the one thing the Soviets did for Cuba, <clears throat> amongst many things perhaps, was buy sugar at a fixed rate. And the thing about sugar, the bloody sugar, is, you know, it's a shocking thing. Up to, and down. Yeah, like a yo-yo. So if you're getting fixed um, price for your sugar, it guaranteed a regular income. Now, of course, the Soviet Union collapses in 91-ish. I mean, they really got their priorities completely wrong, trying to match the US in military might, moonshots, or, you know, space program. This is the problem Cuba got into. And, of course, you know, without the Soviet Union, there were issues. Uh, they returned to tourism in a big, big, big way, which now... I think is a distorting. I mean, the one thing worse than a sugar monoculture is a tourist monoculture. And I think this really is a problem that small islands in the Caribbean have to deal with because it does distort social policies utterly. Can I just say that in the meantime, of course, Cuba 
built a magnificent health system, a magnificent education system, uh, literacy uh, went through the roof. I mean, these social indicators are a triumph. And even though uh, a lot of issues and difficulties, this, in a sense, has to be preserved under any costs if there is a, what's happening today. And not only for their own people, but for people of other third world countries. Absolutely. I think that the beacon... I mean, Cuba took a lot of flack for going and helping Angola during their war against the South Africans and other Western forces. But for Cuba, you've got to realise, see, they were painted as, you know, sort of puppets of Moscow. The problem is that's not true. I mean, Cuba saw the Angolan and Mozambican struggles at that point as, I mean, Cuba sees itself as a African diasporic nation. It sees itself as a third world beacon because, you know, they have achieved what virtually no one else has ever has. And they're 90 miles from the... This is unbelievable. I think pride uh, in their achievements must be maintained and this really is the new phase we're moving into because, I mean, things are happening, as we know, in the recent... in this year. Many watchers of Cuba thought that once Fidel went, it would all fall apart? Mm. Well, I always sort of say, you know, not many dictators retire, because <laughs> I used to call him a dictator. Uh, indeed, brother Raul has taken over. And of course, Raul can do things that Fidel probably couldn't do. I mean, I assume Fidel will die one day. Uh, equally, the vehement, vitriolic Miami boys, as I call them, are also dying off. When I say that, you know, the generation that, of course, you know, the uh, had the pathological hatred. Uh, that's not to say that the, you, you don't poison the next generation. But I think there are a lot of people now in, Q, in Miami who, you know, are losing that real vehemence. Cuba, of course, culture is so amazing. There are sort of interests. And I think, however, there are a lot of dangers, I think, in what's happening in terms of having a rapprochement with the United States. Obviously, embargo is outrageous, they're not a terrorist country. I mean, there remain things that I think the US has to do if they want to have a a sensible, mature relationship with Cuba because it's the most immature relationship because the Cold War is over, I'm told, maybe. Can I talk about democracy in Cuba? Yes, indeed. What is democracy in Cuba? Well, I think the point is this whole issue of the word democracy. I mean, again, you've got to remember that... For 50 years, the West has been fed really by the State Department line about, you know, the markers of what they would call civilization, the freedom, democracy, capitalism. Some would argue that Cuba is in fact a more democratic country than perhaps our country or the United States. I mean, this would, you know, some people just, (laughs) what are you saying? Well, it depends how you define democracy, I think. I mean, I've always thought, I mean, when, um, say, in the US, we'll talk talk about Australia as well, that ultimately in the end in the US, you get a choice between Tweedledum and Tweedledee. I mean, in a way, only two parties can really have a president. And even though the parties may have some differences... Uh, ultimately, it's a very narrow choice. I suppose that's what I'm saying. And even if you choose someone who looks like they're completely out of left field, such as, believe it or not, an African-American as president, that person can do very little. I mean, the room to move is... I mean, when you talk about you know, real say and real change, it's not a democracy. I think the same here. 
one could argue that certain political parties in Australia have moved very much to the right, where there may have perhaps a long time ago, before neoliberalism set in, we call economic rationalism, there seemed to be sort of a difference to some extent uh, between Liberal and Labor parties in Australia. At the moment, to me, they seem very close. You say, well, then don't vote for either of them. Uh, maybe uh, another party like uh, the Greens. So, you know. Well, the Greens, in a way, can never have formed government as such. So, I mean, in a way, and ultimately, the so-called Western liberal democratic dream is somewhat of an illusion. I mean, every three years you can choose between Tweedledum and Tweedledee, whereas in Cuba, let's go back there, the way they operate is that at the low level you have quite horizontal democracy. In other words, you have quite a say over your factory, your workplace. If you're in a factory, to some extent universities, not as much as it used to be. But in other words, in your own world that you live in, uh, you actually have quite a say in a lot of things in day-to-day life. Uh, I suppose the issue is, you know, at the top, is there a consensus vertically? I think for most of the last 50 years there would be. I think most Cubans really admire what's happened. Obviously, this is a country under extreme stress in the sense that it's having an economic war with the most powerful country in the world. So, you know, I think a lot of the distortions in Cuba that people point to, that's part of the problem. I mean, if you could say Cuba in an ideal world was perhaps, you know, had lack of um, consumer goods and uh, other issues that other people have brought up. Uh, however, you've got to, I think the contextual issue is that this country is basically being squeezed by the strongest country in the world. And the fact that it's still going is unbelievable, actually. I mean, it's an enormous achievement. But things have to change. Looking to the future, we've been talking about the Castros, Che Guevara, the other men... Who are the younger generation who are going to carry this on? Well, there are. I think what's what's happened is that the the, the next level that there are quite a group of um, dynamic ministers. That the problem is when you have such a profound revolution, and it does happen that it gets personified into one or two people. This is not good. I mean, in a way, ultimately, there has to be transition. The revolution is more than Fidel and Raúl. The revolution is a great big, I think, a bag of enormous social achievements under the harshest possible conditions, it seems to me. Now, in many ways, the rapprochement and the mature relationships that have to exist need to pass to a new generation. And there are a group of young ministers who are committed to the revolutionary achievements but are realistic enough to say, well, look... The rest of the world actually has become utterly neoliberal. That doesn't now I think the challenge is that we don't buy into that, that we say that there has to be a retention of the sorts of human values that the revolution has preserved has achieved within an, some form of accommodation. I mean the idea will be can neoliberal capitalism be sustained throughout the world. I, and I think that's it's not going to change. Cuba's not going to change it. The rest of the world's going to realise that you know, more of us, perhaps a Keynesian, uh, well, somewhere where the government protects people and that the number of billionaires perhaps reduced because this is really what's happening under this system. And I think the middle classes really in the f- developed world will realise that their kids 
will never have proper jobs. They will have permanent casual employment. And it's a funny thing because I think neoliberalism, to my view, you can talk about innovation, you can talk about, well, look, let's, you know, it's about the clever country. You know, we got to, you know, they'll always, we can always find new things for people to work at. I think ultimately it will not cater for the numbers who need employment. And this is where there's going to have to be a change. Now, if Cuba can hold on to the sorts of social justice matters that it has achieved while the rest of the world moves back to some form of what you might call humane mixed capitalism, almost a sort of Keynesian era that we grew up in, I think they're going to hold their ground. But the pressures will be enormous. The last thing is to let the Miami boys back in, not that there are many of the old guard left. And I think also there are other major demands that must be met. They've got to give back Guantanamo. They've got to allow Cuba to keep its incredible social service system that it's um, held, not to privatise universities, not to privatise medical treatment. This is the danger because that is the trend everywhere, as we know in our own country. So there are inherent dangers. I think the mature relationship has to happen. I mean, again, the more the US bash them over the head, the more hardened they become. I mean, to about civil rights, well, I mean, you know, they'll get more defensive. I mean, Obama's a clever fellow because in a way he can see that 50 years of US bashing Cuba on the head has actually (laughs) made it worse. I mean, in a way, let's not get too carried away. I mean, he's a a bit like Roosevelt, you could say, you know, a bit of carrot and stick. I mean, Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt was Mr. Stick, whereas Franklin Roosevelt was carrot and stick. You know, it's a little subtle, complex way of dealing with matters. So Cuba's got to really hold firm on this, I think. Because, you know, you can be romanced into giving up everything you've achieved. (laughs) And so there's a danger. While we're talking about Florida, we've got the Operation Peter Pan, which still felt very strongly in Cuba today. Yes, this was, it's interesting, in that sort of early period where a a sort of shudder went through the middle classes, there was this sort of feeling that somehow... Cuban youth could be saved by getting them out of this, you know, slowly emerging uh, as the US perspective of this concentration, uh, what's the word, communist concentration camp. And the you know, State Department were sponsoring Peter Pan, you know, it's like, you know, let's help these, these kids. And I think a lot of children were moved over through this program. And I mean, there's a lot of research being done on it, particularly uh, people in Australia here actually as well, about the consequences of this whole generation of young Cubans who were taken out of Cuba by the US State Department. Did their parents know where they were? I'm not sure. I think there was a mixed... I mean, some of them, I think, were quite happy for them to go because I think they were scared. But I think there's a mixed bag. I think there's been some terrible sorts of relationship issues, a bit like, you know, the stolen generation type of issues coming up here. It needs a lot of research. And I think it's one of those not talked about very often. It's interesting you mention it because I think there was a period, I think, of some deep resentment of children, you know, seemingly being saved... In fact, the more I think about it, the more sort of stolen generation issues do sort of permeate. You know, people think, well, we're helping you, where in many ways they're tearing people apart, even though there would have been some who took their job. I mean, they went to Florida and took their job. But the Peter Pan, I think, is something that really needs to be properly investigated. And thanks to Dr. Ralph Newmark, who is the director of the Latin American Institute at La Trobe University. 
for yet another talk on countries in Latin America and the Caribbean, and that time it was Cuba. And talking about sugar with Cuba, let's hear from this one. So, Fred, uh, how are we today? Uh, yeah, yeah, good. good. Mm, we've certainly got some cavities here ah. in 16, 27 and 36. Oh, how did that happen? Sugar overload. Oh. You're in need of H3O. What's that? H3O? Uh. Simple. Switch sugary drinks for water for 30 days. Oh. Keep it up and you may hear less of this. Take Vic Health's H3O Challenge and switch sugary drinks for water for 30 days. Find out more at h3ochallenge.com.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. Spoken by Kate Gorman and Jeremy Hopkins. Last month's Berta Kakaris, Honduran Indigenous leader, was awarded the world's most prestigious environmental prize, the Goldman Environmental Prize, which honours grassroots environmental activists. To learn more about her and the fight for Indigenous lands and participatory democracy in Honduras, I spoke with Beverly Bell in California, the founder of Other Worlds and more than a dozen international organisations and networks. Other Worlds, together with Faux International, nominated Berta for the award. Beverly, could I ask you first a little about your work with social movements around the world before we talk about Berta's work. I am the founder and coordinator of Other Worlds, which title comes from the World Social Forum, the annual grandmother of social movement gatherings that says that another world is possible, but also the slogan of the Zapatistas in Chiapas, which says, in this world fit many worlds, because there is no single reality. And what we do as a small collaborative of women is to stand with movements around the world, as well as in the U.S., who are working for economic, social, environmental, and gender justice and seek to open those alternatives. We know that in this world that is dominated by transnational capitalism, it is very hard for people to forge a better way, but people are doing it. And so we have two aims. First is to spread the news of what is actually happening and making a difference in the world, to let the rest of us know that we are not condemned to live on this planet as it currently is. And then secondly, we support the frontline movements who are, in fact, making the alternatives. Can you talk about a couple of those apart from Berta? We'll come to Berta in a minute, but can you talk about a couple that you've been involved with in the, the recent years? One place where we have worked very, very deeply, in fact, I have been involved there for 35 years, is Haiti. Just hours after the earthquake happened in that horrible, horrible earthquake of January 2010, I began getting word from social movement leaders in Haiti stating very plainly that what had happened was not just a natural disaster, it was also a human-made disaster, the result of structural violence that actually you can draw a straight line to right back to the 80s and 90s with funding from the International Monetary Fund, which had in fact completely undermined Haitian peasant agriculture and forced hundreds of thousands of people to go to Port-au-Prince where they had no money and were forced to live in extremely shoddy housing made of very substandard materials in places where nobody should live, such as very, very steep 
mountainsides and ravines. So the collapse of their houses, those cement houses on people's bodies, was in fact the main cause of the quarter million or so deaths. I say or so because we will never know how many people died. There are other factors, too, that were human-made, and the folks in Haiti were very clear immediately that not only was the cause of the earthquake very much aggravated by human factors, but they knew that the reconstruction itself was going to be very political. And in fact, it turns out that reconstruction is very much a question of power. It's not just about building houses and infrastructure. It's really about who gets to control the future development model of the country. And so we began getting requests to go down to Haiti, which I did a couple of weeks later, and ended up spending two years living there. And then we continue now, five years after that horrible disaster, being very deeply involved with Haitian grassroots movements, which are extremely strong in their history and in their efforts, even if they don't have much power in the nation, who are working to rebuild a different country, one based on food sovereignty and gender justice and participatory democracy. So that is a case of where Other Worlds has worked very hard to both publicize internationally as well as support in many, many ways, but especially politically, the work of grassroots movements. We also work a lot to uphold, uphold different models. And to give you a second example, one of our bodies of work has been to promote gift economies around the world. What we are told is that gift economies still exist in indigenous societies and pre-industrialized societies, but otherwise it's generally gone. In fact, that's not true. There are many efforts everywhere, even in the country where I live, which, um, you know, is the country most driven by profit of any nation ever in history. There are many, many ways in which people are attempting to sustain relationships with each other and with the earth outside of commodification. That is to have relationships that are not based on exchange, but that are simply based on gifting. So we have tracked this from Mali to the U.S. to India and many other countries, and it is a beautiful and inspiring thing to see. So those are two examples of the sort of work we do at Other Worlds. Well, let's focus on Bertha and her work, and to do that we need to look at the history or the, the fairly recent history of Honduras to get an understanding of why her work is so important. Yes. Oh, my goodness. The organization that Bertha founded 20-plus years ago is called the Civic Council of Popular and Indigenous Organizations of Honduras, or COPIN for short. And it is one of the most effective organizations that I know. It's composed of Lenca indigenous people, as well as rural campesino farmers. And in its short history, they have been able to virtually clear their land of outside logging operations after they stopped 36 logging and sawmills. Now, actually, timber companies don't even want to go into their lands. They have mobilized the government to ratify the International 
international labor organizations, Convention 169, which forces the government to obtain free, prior, and informed consent of indigenous peoples before initiating projects on their land. They went even further and got the Honduran government to make that a part of the Constitution. Now, neither of those is ever res- is respected at all, and that is why the work of COPIN and of other grassroots movements in Honduras is so important to keep the lands and the sacred rivers and the forests and the resources under the soil for the indigenous people who are their stewards. But that th- those even having gotten those things passed on the books, is huge. They have gotten one area, one indigenous area, that of Monteverde, actually declared a protected area, which is something that is almost unheard of. They have pressured the government to give title to many of their lands and actually got a law changed whereby the government gave collective title instead of individual title, gave the collective title to the Lenca people and the community itself, which is a wonderful victory. Oh, gosh, Jen, they have gone on and on and on. They have founded a school for community leadership to train community leaders in grassroots advocacy. They have established a radio station called The Voice of the Lenca. They have created community spaces. They've gotten the government to turn over areas to them. In fact, there's an area that they got the the government of Celaya to give to them, and they now have a liberated zone that they call Utopia. Their work is really remarkable, and for this, they have come under extraordinary, extraordinary vicious attack from the government and the paid goons of the landholders and those who are seeking to, especially these days, put in, uh, excuse me, dams. Can you talk a little bit about the history, though? What was happening before they began operating to change the system to benefit the Indigenous people? Well, the same thing that is still happening now, they were completely bereft of protected rights. The governments and the landholders came in and stole whatever land they wanted, enacted whatever extraction and development projects they wanted, and systematically beat up and killed people who tried to resist and tried to fight back. And that is still happening, especially that backlash. Only now there are protections. Now there are organized groups. Now there is international support. And a lot of that has come through the work of Copin, which Berta leads. Who are the major landholders? Are they local or are they from overseas? Well, both. There's one man in Honduras, one of the most infamous characters there. His name is Miguel Facuse. He is the richest man in the country. He has complete carte blanche from the government, and he has been stealing lands all over, especially lands to host palm oil plantations to make agrofuel for export to feed the oil craze of countries like the United States and others as well. There are also other large landowners who are holding land illegally. They just declare it theirs, and they have the political power and the forces, the armed forces, to back it up. And then the government itself has been involved in many thefts, including 
turning land over to multinational corporations and foreign investors who, again, are operating illegally. And one place where this has transpired recently and is the cause for which Berta Cáceres won the Goldman Environmental Prize, the most prestigious prize for environmental workers anywhere in the world, is a community called Rio Blanco. And the backstory of what has been happening there is that the members of the community, who are only a few hundred families, awakened one morning, basically, and found out that the largest dam company in the world, which is owned by the government of China, called Sino Hydro, had come in uh, with um, bulldozers, was running over their agricultural land, and together with another company that is owned both by Hondurans and foreigners, were attempting to put a dam over their sacred Huacapque River. And so that is what began the confrontation um, that has become very bloody with three deaths and many, many other attacks. And I'd love to tell you the whole story if we have time. And it was actually stopped. And that is why the Goldman Award was proffered. Yes, please tell the story. It's an amazing story, actually, Jan. It's uh, the story of David and Goliath. It's the story of what people can do when they have enough uh, determination and especially when they can garner friendship from allies outside. So these few hundred families of Lenka indigenous peoples fought back and tried to do whatever they could, but they, they lacked the strength and, or excuse me, not the strength rather, but the power, that is, they weren't heard. And so these dam companies went ahead and put in all sorts of installations on the land down in this beautiful green valley in preparation of actually damming the river. And so people, the citizens of Rio Blanco, realized they had to ramp up their work, and so they barricaded the uh, road to the dam. They cut a huge trench in it. They put um, a few sticks and wires over across it as a little fence, and every day, all the members of the community, from little babies to elders, went and stood in front of it. And meanwhile, some of those members of Copine and their friends with access to Internet and such things began uh, sending out denunciations and getting in touch with the press and getting in touch with friends around the world. And those who care about Honduras outside of that country are not very many. Uh, it's a rather invisible country, unfortunately. But those of us who did get the call began mobilizing and supporting in any way we could and all working together, but especially through the determination of those who were in the community, they were able to stop the dam after, I believe, two and a half years. And the dam is no longer. The World Bank pulled out. The Chinese giant dam company pulled out. But unfortunately, not before, as I mentioned, three people were killed Three others were macheted. One person was kidnapped. Others were threatened. Berta Cáceres herself and two others had up to eight charges leveled against each of them, charges amounting to sedition, ridiculous things like causing a danger to the general security of the nation of Honduras. And then an arrest warrant went out for Berta, and she had spent many, many months living deep underground. So the toll has been heavy, but this is an example of what can happen when organized people fight back. And in this case, there has been a beautiful victory 
with still more attempts to get the people to turn around and the dam to advance, but thus far they have held strong and it has not happened. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne's community radio station, 3CR. Jan Bartlett with you, and I'm speaking with Beverly Bell, who's the founder of Other Worlds, about the battle for environmental justice and Indigenous rights in Honduras. What was the straw that broke the camel's back for the dam company? Was there one particular instance that they said, right, well, we'll give up? I think it was a culmination of things. It was really that they were being too embarrassed. The word went out all over. Any of us who had access to international press began writing, began doing radio interviews, began talking. Friends in Washington, D.C. began lobbying Congress. We got the voice of Berta and others out directly as much as we could. There were human rights charges brought to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, where the government of Honduras was found guilty. There was a full-page ad taken out in the second-largest newspaper in Honduras the day before this ridiculous political trial against the three members of COPIN that I mentioned, saying that these charges were false and that they should be dropped. And I believe that what happened was that it altogether, we made it too expensive for the dam companies to continue. Whatever they might have made in profits from the dam was not worth the backlash that they were getting. And certainly that is true for the World Bank that does not like negative attention. It's an object lesson, Jan, for all of us around the world that we do not have to be victims. And even though we don't have the money and we don't have the institutionalized power of the multinationals and, of course, the governments, we can win. Are there other large hydro schemes planned? Yes, there are. In fact, one on the same river further downstream, we have now learned that another company called Blue River is planning on coming in and putting in a dam. And we are now, all of us, the big we, under the guidance of Copin, are gearing up to fight back. And there are other, many other projects around the country, not just in the area where the Copin folks are, but in other indigenous territories and in other parts of the country where different types of development and extraction, always for profit, for someone else's profit, are still moving forward. And the deaths continue. The the, uh, Global Witness came out with a report that said that Honduras is the most dangerous country in the world to be an environmental defender. And many, many, many people are killed every year. Ten members of Copine have already been killed. The threats are horrible. Rarely does a week go by that I don't get some urgent, desperate action alert in my inbox. But they are undaunted. They continue. Are there human rights lawyers, and are they threatened as well? Oh, yes, indeed. Human rights lawyers have been killed. I'm not sure of the number, but there have been a number that have been killed and tortured over the years. And, you know, I just have to say here that the role of the United States government has been key to all of this. The U.S., in fact, just sent in Marines to Honduras three weeks ago on the guise of drugs, but we know better. Uh, the U.S., as some of your listeners will know, used the, well, really turned Honduras over uh, as pretty much its client state, its foothold in Central America. This began in the late 70s or early 80s 
well, after the Sandinistas won their revolution in Nicaragua and the U.S. began the Contra War, a totally illegal war against that revolution, since that time, the U.S. has continued its role there. It maintains more than, I'm not sure how, because they keep putting new ones in, but at last count, more than six U.S. military bases. They give tens of millions of dollars every year in aid to the military and the police, and they strongly back this government, which is a result of an illegal coup held a few years back that the U.S. government was very involved in. In fact, Hillary Clinton's recent book talks about the role of the U.S. in that coup. That continues. That support for this horrible, vicious government in Honduras continues very strongly under the U.S. government, paid for by taxpayers of people like myself and all of my compatriots. Can you talk about the impact of oil palm plantations on the peoples of Honduras? Yes, it's been horrible. So first, the lands have been stolen, as I mentioned, primarily by this oligarch named Miguel Facuse. I don't have the figure of exactly how many hectares of land have been put into production for palm oil, but there are huge plantations all over. In numerous cases especially in a place called the Bajo Ajuan, the Lower Ajuan, which is the most violent area in the country for environmental defenders, which is also peasant people, that's who the defenders are, and indigenous peoples. Fakuse and others have put in vast palm oil plantations after kicking people off their land. And over and over and over, when people have tried to go back and reclaim their land or reoccupy their land, they have been killed. So palm oil is not only leading to, well, first it leads to cutting down many, many trees and destroying agriculture, you know, providing much-needed food in a very poor country uh, in order to plant the palm oil, and then it requires evicting people and then uh, committing human rights against those who try and fight back. That's the package that we're looking at. So there is also a move um, led by groups like Friends of the Earth International working together with people in Honduras to stop this spread of land thefts for palm oil. Can we talk a bit more about Bertha? What was in her early life that led her to the place she is now? What was her family life? Bertha Casares is one of the most extraordinary people I have ever met, and I work with a lot of extraordinary people around the world. She attributes her mother to her political consciousness raising and her engagement. Her mother is equally extraordinary. Her, if you look at her mother, you know, she wears sensible shoes and a house dress. She's an elder woman with a gray bun in the back of her head. And yet she has been a freedom fighter for decades. She actually was mayor of the town way back when, when women did not typically hold elective offices. She went on to become the governor of the state. She was also a nurse and a midwife and birthed almost every person in that town into her hands. And she believed fiercely in freedom. And she was very supportive of the liberation movements in El Salvador and in Nicaragua. She was very supportive of the revolution in Cuba. And she inculcated these beliefs into her children that justice is primordial and that everyone deserves human rights. And Berta speaks a lot about going inside rooms or inner courtyards that don't give out onto the street and closing the doors and turning down revolutionary radio from Nicaragua and Cuba that was illegal to listen to in Honduras, but listening to it 
you know, very clandestinely. And so from an early age, she was raised with a different set of values. And she and her then husband set out to found this Menka organization, as I said, more than 20 years ago. Her children? Yes, she had four children. And um, she had to send three of them out of the country when the violence against her got too bad. I think that was about three years ago. She um, was too scared for them to remain. She kept only her little boy, who was still in, I think, high school at the time. Now I know that another of her children is back in the country, but two of them still reside in Latin America where they can be safe from the endless attacks that are uh, put upon her. And I'm endless. I've lived with her, uh, and it's just extraordinary to see the degree of with which these, these threats come in of all kinds, everything from, you know, they're planting a gun on the floor of her pickup truck and saying that, you know, charging with her with illegally carrying a weapon to forcing her to go down to the county courthouse and sign a paper every Friday showing that she is still in the area. She was forbidden from leaving the country. I mean, it's just amazing, not to mention death threats that she's gotten on her telephone and other efforts to stop her beautiful, beautiful struggle for human rights and justice and land rights for all peoples in Honduras and indeed for all around the world because she is an internationalist and she knows that none of us is free, as Martin Luther King said, until all of us are free. And you witnessed all this when you were living with her? I witnessed some of it, and we've been in regular touch for, oh, uh, gosh, I don't know, 16, 17 years we've been dear friends, and I have heard about it and read about it in, in public news for many, many, many years. And there has been many a period where I never knew from one day to the next if I was going to turn on my computer and see that Bertha had been assassinated because it's just that dangerous for her. And that is one reason why we're so happy for this Goldman Prize because it does give her greater visibility. And it is a gamble, but um, we believe that at this point, the more visible she is, the more dangerous it is for people to go after her. For example, she was just she just spoke for 10 minutes on CNN Spanish station that went all over the Americas just last week, and the visibility that has come from this award has just been extraordinary. A little bit like Rigoberta Menchu, the way that the award kept her safe. Yes, exactly. Very much, very much like that. What was the reaction from her friends worldwide when the the prize was announced. What was the celebration? Oh, people were, yes, people were so delighted. Berta has friends everywhere. She has traveled in the international circle that is part of social movements that have crossed borders, and she is very well known and very respected. She is not a leader only in Honduras. She's a leader all throughout Latin America. I had the joy of being able to send out the news all over Latin America uh, the day that the award was made public. And the response was, you know, extraordinary. Everything from the landless workers movement in Brazil immediately posting it on their website to congratulations coming in from as far as the Philippines. People were just overjoyed because everyone who has ever worked with this extraordinary, amazing woman knows how much she has worked tirelessly night and day without any worry of her own life. I mean, certainly, yes, worry, but not putting that first. Everyone also knew that finally this struggle in Honduras that is so powerful but that has really flown under the radar in many places 
certainly in the U.S. I don't know about Australia, I imagine so, but that finally it would get some attention. Berta loves to say that Honduras is known for only two things. One is having been the base for the Contras in her, uh, during the U.S. war against Nicaragua, and second for Hurricane Mitch. But uh, now people are, some people now are seeing that Honduras has something else too, which is a strong and powerful social movement fighting for democracy and justice. And there's a, a financial, a monetary component to this prize as well. Yes, that's right. The prize has come with so many things. Uh, Berta came up to the U.S. for a week and all of us jumped in together and organized press conferences and community events meetings with funders, many, many meetings with her on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. She was on TV, she was on radio, on newspaper. We got the word out everywhere. And it does come with the prize of 175000 U.S. dollars, which Berta, uh, she may keep a little tiny bit for her family, which has no income and no resources at all, but she will certainly put that towards Popine, and it has been very hard to fundraise for this movement for the same reason that very few people know or care about Honduras. But, yes, that money will help very much as they mobilize their forces and to continue to fight on so many fronts. There are just so many areas of the country and issues on which they have to mobilize themselves, and it does take money, so this will help enormously. Thanks for sharing her story, Beverly. Oh, it's such a pleasure to speak with you. My goodness, I'm just delighted to be connected with Australia in this. I'm going to write there and tell her it's just another indicator of how far this news is getting out. And so thank you for your part in that. And that was Beverly Bell, who's from California and a group organization called Other Worlds, talking about the Goldwyn Environmental Plan to Indigenous Honduras activists. And in the coming weeks, I hope to speak to Beverly again about Haiti. That's all for me for today. I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Stay tuned for Jonathan very soon. Bye for now.